0: Morning, everybody. I'm Will Cody. As uh, Cohen said, I'm the campus minister at Austin P. in Clarksville, Tennessee. And we last week we were in Luke 18. We're going to go one chapter forward. We're going to look in Luke chapter 19, the parable of the thank you. The parable of the minus is called often. It's in Luke chapter 19, verses uh, 11 through 27. Jesus is like one week closer to. Jerusalem. He's one week closer to, um, to being crucified in Jerusalem. He's one week away. And he's, let's just start in our text. So Luke chapter 19. Let's hear Jesus speak to us as he tells the crowd and he tells us this parable. As the crowd, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And he said to those who stood by, take the minor from him and give it to the one who has 10 minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minus. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The grass withers, flower fades, and the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would um, redirect our hearts, redirect our minds this morning. That you would uh, teach us the truth of the gospel. And that this truth would set us free to love you, serve you, and to love and serve those you put in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the worst uh, experience? Have you ever had a really bad experience where you had to wait? You ever had a really bad waiting experience? I'm going to tell you one of my bad waiting experiences. Um, so after college, I went to Seoul, South Korea, and I, teach, I taught English there as an English teacher. And my first job was as an elementary teacher. And one of the reasons uh, I, love that, I love that school, the, that job was great. The coworkers great. My, my principal loved me. And one of the reasons that I love the school is they had this, like, teacher social club. So they go on trips with, the, with my fellow Korean teachers. We go on trips around South Korea and do fun adventures. And so after I first started working there, it was like three months later, and they were doing their first social club event of the semester. And we were gonna go hiking up Mount Suraxon. It's a few hours from Seoul. But there was a problem. Um, They're planning on leaving at two in the morning. All the teachers are gonna to get together at the school at two in the morning. And they were gonna leave and get there really early in the morning. But I, don't, I didn't have a car. And public transportation ends at like 1030 at night. So I had no way of getting to the school to rendezvous with all of my teachers. But my principal loved me. And he really wanted me to come so my principal had a plan for how to get me to the to go on this trip Um, His plan was that i'm going to take the subway the last subway at 10 30 at night on friday night and then um, i'm going to come to the school and I'm going to meet up with the security guard who apparently sleeps at the school. Thinking about this, I don't know how this made sense. But apparently the security guard sleeps at the school. Maybe he was just doing it this once because I was there. I don't know. So I was, going to, I was going to meet up with the security guard. I was going to sleep in the little room that he has that's adjoined to the school. And, um, and then I will wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and meet up with all the other teachers as we go to the mountain. So I'm like, this does not sound very fun at all. <laughs> but I still wanted to go on this adventure. And by this point, I couldn't really say no to the principal because he had thought this elaborate plan up. So Friday night comes and I get on the subway, 10.30 at night, and then um, I actually wrote, I had like a blog journal kind of thing where I, and this is what I wrote down the day after. Okay, here's what happened on that night. I I write, Friday night, I came back to school at 10.30 p.m. to sleep with the security guard. (laughs) (laughs) I think I woke him up because he didn't look very happy with me. Um, I fell asleep pretty quickly and then he started snoring. I banged the floor and made as much noise as I could, but he wouldn't stop. So I got up, put my clothes on, and asked him to let me out. I don't know what clothes I, was, I had taken off as. Uh, so I walked around until 2 a.m. when I met up with some other teachers. So what followed was like, so I couldn't sleep, I couldn't be, he was snoring so loudly, I had to get out. So I got out and then I had to walk around. There was, you know, I didn't have a smart, this is before smartphones. I didn't have a smartphone, I didn't have an iPod, I didn't have a book, everything was closed. There was nothing to do and it was some of, I just like laid down on a bench and just, I just, well, I just was for three hours. It was terrible. (laughs) Um, Waiting can be some of the most annoying and boring experiences and even, it could be the most, depending on what you're waiting for, it could be a very anxiety-ridden experience. And we're all waiting for different things in our lives right now. Um, Some of us are waiting for new jobs. Some of us are waiting um, word on a friend's health. Maybe you're waiting for a vacation Maybe you're waiting for this current season of life to change. But Jesus, in our parable, he's pointing us this morning to one thing that we are all waiting for, which is his return. Where we are in Luke right now and how the book goes, like the anticipation is just like ramping up right now as he's getting closer to Jerusalem. Jesus is only like a few hours away from Jerusalem, and his, his disciples are filled with this excitement that the kingdom of God, they're expecting it to fully, um, fully, fully, appear immediately right now they're expecting jesus to waltz into jerusalem um, declare himself the heir of da- the heir of the throne of david and just this just um this cataclysmic end to to fall on the romans these roman oppressors and finally jesus is going to make everything right which has been wrong for so long for the jews and as we know that is not what happens we know that's not what jesus does when he comes into jerusalem so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is taking this, um, the current, like, the current uh, enthusiasm that all these people are having. He's going to take it and hijack it and use it as an opportunity to teach them what it means and what it looks like to wait for his final return. Now, we are in a similar situation to the original audience here. We are waiting for Jesus to do his thing, right? We're all waiting for Jesus to return and get rid and just rid the world of everything that is evil, everything that is corrupt, everything that is oppressive, everything that tastes, smells like death. We're waiting for Jesus to come, return, and rid the world of it. That's what we're all waiting for. And Jesus, as we wait, Jesus wants to teach us as we wait for his return. He wants to teach us. He wants to teach the original audience. There are things that we need to know. And there are things that we need to do as we wait. So the big idea of this text is that we are, that Jesus is coming back to to reign as the king. Jesus is coming back to rule and reign as the king. And because Jesus is coming back to rule and reign as the king, there are three things that, from this text that he wants us to do. And these are our three points. The first is that we should, number one, we should do business for the returning king. Number two, we should look forward to our returning king. And number three, we should be faithful to our returning king. First point, we should do business for our returning king. Look with me in verse 12. Jesus says, in this, we're going to open up this parable here. Jesus says in verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So we have this nobleman and he's going on this long journey to receive a kingdom. And he gathers his servants to him and he gives them a charge. Now, this is not a common practice today to go on a long journey to receive a kingdom. We, that doesn't make any sense. That didn't make any sense the first time I read this, but it would have made a lot of sense to his original hearers. They would have been familiar with this. Um, they actually had a, a, a recent, semi-recent event that was very much like this that Jesus was probably growing on. There's a guy, Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was the, was the, uh, the king of that area. And his, when Herod the Great died, his son, his name was Archelius, he succeeded his father's jurisdiction of Judea and Jerusalem. And he, Archelius, he had to go all the way to Rome in order to receive the title of king. Because the big king at this time, his name, you might have heard of him, Julius Caesar, he was the king at this time. So Archelaus had to go all the way to Rome in order to receive this title of king because king is not a title that you want if you're the king king you don't want other people claiming they're king unless you know you check them out and you vetted them right so arcalius goes all the way to rome to ask julius caesar if he can have this title but at the same time this jewish delegation from this area they rushed to rome as well because they did not want arcalius to be king they wanted julius caesar to not give him this title they wanted julius caesar to oust him from this position So this is a very similar thing to what Jesus is talking about happened. Now, in history, what happened, Caesar ended up giving him the power of, you know, ruling this area, but never actually gave him this title of king. And if you want to go on a deep dive in Wikipedia, go check out the the Herod family. It is nuts. It's like this soap opera of affairs, uh, scandals, murders. It's a really fun rabbit hole to go down. Um, So the original audience they would have known what this kind of thing is, going off to a far country to receive a kingdom. So this nobleman, he goes off to a far country like Archelius did. He goes to the highest king to be confirmed as the local king for whatever region that they're living in. And here's, a, here's the crux of this. While this nobleman is away, physically not present in his home country, He calls 10 of his servants to come, and he gives each of these 10 servants, he gives them one mina. Now, a mina is about three months of salary. It's like if you have, usually this is like what an emergency fund should be, right? About three months salary. So this isn't like a talent. A talent's 20 years of salary. This is a mina. It's three months of salary. So it's not like huge, but it's not insignificant. And what is the nobleman wanting these guys, these servants, to do with his money? He says... Engage in business until I come so he wants them to make money with this money He wants them to expand this up, make it bigger. He wants for example, you know, expand it by um, maybe starting a sandal business or maybe um, Investing in the latest fishnet technology of the time or maybe I don't know invent a rocket that can be retrieved and reused after each orbital launch Something like that. Make this mine a big. So these servants are gonna, they're they're gonna be his hands. These servants, while he's gone, they are going to be his agents. They're gonna be his representatives until he returns. So the business goes on, all the business goes on, while he is physically not there. He has business to do, he has business for them to do for him in his stead. Now, where are we in the story? If you haven't figured it out, we are these servants. Jesus has died. Jesus has been resurrected. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he is in the presence of God the Father. He's gone on a long journey, and all of our hope is in his return. We read the Apostles Creed today, and one of the lines in it says, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come. That's what we're waiting for. He shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now, This is a parable, so we're waiting for him to come. And this parable is a parable, so not everything fits one to one. That's how parable works, parables work. For example, Jesus is like, he's always the, he's been, he's the eternal king, right? Even in the humble state in which he came to this earth, he's still a king. And Jesus is not gone, gone. Jesus is present with us by his Holy Spirit when we take the bread and the cup. He speaks to us in his word. Um, He hears us, he hears our prayers, he answers our prayers. So it's not like he's gone, gone, like this nobleman is gone, gone. But Jesus is physically not present on this earth. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And the point of this parable so far is that he has given you and he has given me business to do for him while he is physically not here. Now, as I was reading uh, the commentaries for this text, Um, There were some differences to what this mina, what a mina represents here. What is the mina in real life? Um, But one pastor put it this way, and it kind of encapsulated everything that I was reading, and I thought it was really helpful. He said, here's what the mina represents. The mina is your life. We all get one, like these guys all get one. We all get one life. And this new life that God has graced to you, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this new life that you've given? Because you were once like these citizens, these citizens that ran off and were, they didn't want to do the business. They didn't want to do the nobleman's business. They hated the nobleman's business. But God met you and he changed you so that you are being renewed in his image to do his business. So what is your life supposed to look like? What are we supposed to do in this waiting time, in this time with this life that we've been given? Simple answer that we learn from this text is that we are to be faithful to the king while he's away. We're to be faithful to the king. And that that's, should be our heart motive, right? Is to, in all of our life, to faithfully serve this king with the whole of our life, with every aspect of our life. You know, God's put you and you only, whatever your name is, God's put you and you only into very specific places. With specific, you're in a specific family. You're in a specific neighborhood, you're in a specific place of power, you're in a specific place of weakness, you've got specific friends, and he wants you to use your life to do business for him wherever he's put you. He's called you and he's chosen you to represent him, to do his business. We're going to look at some specific examples in a moment, but he's called us to do his business. Now, what should motivate us to do his business? This could be a little overwhelming or, you know, I got, that's a lot of responsibility. What should be our motive? What is a big motive? There's a lot of motives, but what's one big motive from this text? It's kind of a fun one. This is our second point. We should look forward to the returning king. His return is a motivation for us. His, the fact that he's coming should motivate us to do his business, not in a threatening way, but in actually a, a fun way. You know, I'll explain why. So one of the worst jobs that I ever had was working at Blockbuster Video. Did anybody out here ever work at Blockbuster Video? I was curious how much you got paid if you did, because when I worked at Blockbuster Video, it was a grueling, it, it, it was not objectively grueling and hard, but it felt grueling and hard, because this is the only job I've ever had where you actually got paid minimum wage. I've never had a job like that before. It was 5.15 an hour when I was in uh, high school. And I was very happy when Blockbuster went out of business, because I did not like that company at all. There, you notice there's always like one left somewhere. There's always one left in Alaska. Um, but finally, one day they're gonna kick the bucket completely. Um, one of the jobs though that I most enjoyed when I was in college was actually my, in high school, was actually my first job. I was a host at this restaurant, so I seated people to their tables. And for some reason, they gave me a part of the tip share. I didn't know how this worked at the time. The first time it happened, I was like blown away. But I could make, and I was 14 years old, so I could make, on top of my regular uh, salary, that I, this had to be a mistake, on top of my regular salary that I was making, like, I could work six hours on a Friday night as a 14-year-old, and I'd make like 100 $120 on top of it. It was nuts. It was nuts. Um, and I bought a guitar with it, which was fun. It was, but all that, that reward that I was getting at the end of my shift, that was a huge motivator and changed the whole way that I saw the job, changed my whole attitude toward the job. I was a good worker at this restaurant. I loved this job because of the reward that I got for my work and my labor. Now, this sounds a little selfish at first, but go with me. Trust me. It's all over the Bible. The rewards that we get for doing business for him should motivate us. It's not the only motivation, but it's a really big one. Look at our text, the rest of the, some more in our text, verse 16 through 19. That's what happens in our text. So when the king returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in the very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So nobleman comes back, and he orders his servants to come up. Let's give an account of what happened while I was gone. And the first servant comes out. He's got one mina, and he has turned it into ten more. He's got eleven minas total. And the guy with the, the other guy turned his one into five. And this is a, notice this is just kind of a staggering escalation here. They went from having authority over three months of salary to having authority over cities, over whole cities. One guy even got 10 cities. This is a staggering escalation. So what this nobleman king is doing is, so he's gone to the big, big king, Caesar-ish person, and he's received this rule over this region And so the nobleman king, the main character here, he's doling out sections of his domain to the servants to take care of that, to take care of these places for him. And they're given power by him. They're giving agency, they're made agents over these cities in his stead. They're going to rule these cities with him as the big king over them. And the reward is, so the reward is this exponentially bigger reward than they should have received exponentially bigger than what they were entrusted with in the beginning. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that look like for us when we receive these rewards? Now, before, I'm gonna digress for a second and come back. Before doing RUF, I was a youth director for like four, uh, four years and I've been doing RUF last year and I've gotten a lot of questions, a lot of diverse and interesting issues that young people have. And one of them that was kind of interesting that I wouldn't think would come up that much, but it does, comes up often, is the, the, uh, the thought, the issue of eternity. This really freaks people out. I don't know if you ever, maybe it freaks you out too. But I think this, tel- this text helps us. So some people get, they're like, I'm just going to be this disembodied. I'm going to sit in a room forever. That doesn't sound very fun. Um, but this, this text and others help us with that. Um, so Jesus gives a glimpse of what eternity is going to look like and there's more throughout the Bible, about what eternity looks like and what eternal rewards look like. Um, What it looks like here is we're going to be given authority over the the earth. We're going to be given reign over the earth. You know, that's actually what, that was the original plan in Genesis 1 and 2. Remember, we were supposed to rule the earth in a good, uh, loving, wholesome way where everything shalom fits together. That's the way it was supposed to be at the beginning. We're going to have work to do. And it's not going to be like this frustrating toilsome meaningless work that we often experience here in this broken world it's going to be work in service with all of those things that drive us crazy gone it's going to be fulfilling it's going to be life-giving that's what we're going to be doing and we can't really imagine it because we've never experienced it before there's that kind of a sense um where there's kind of a sense where we can't really imagine this because we've never experienced eternity before We've never experienced fulfilling, completely fulfilling, and life-giving work before. We've got a taste of it here. Um, Romans 5, we read that today. There's a section in Romans 5 that says that in the end, uh, Romans 5:10. in the end, when Jesus makes th- all things whole and right and good, when he comes back, uh, Romans 5:10 says, and you have made them, that's us, a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we're going to reign on the earth. In Revelation 22, it says something really similar too. It says that the Lord God will be our light and we will reign forever and ever, for eternity. We're going to reign forever and ever, eternity, with Jesus. Now, this kind of dispels a couple things. First of all, we will be doing things for eternity. It's not going to be some floating in the air in the clouds. We'll be reigning as gods, as Jesus' under kings. Secondly Eternity is not this disembodied state. We're gonna live on this earth. We're gonna live here <laughs> Unless we figure out ways to get to another place. which could be pretty cool But we're gonna live here on this earth the very earth that you woke up on this morning. We are going to live here for Eternity, but it's gonna be changed. It's gonna be perfect. And finally We are going to get rewards that are exponentially greater than what we deserve We are going to get rewards that are exponentially greater, expo- I, I hope I'm using that word right, exponentially greater than what we deserve. When Jesus returns to reign on the earth, he is going to give rewards to his people for what they've done with the lives that they've been given. There are several places in the Bible that speak about the things we do that merit rewards when Jesus returns. Here are a couple examples, just bare examples that they, are going to get a reward for this. this is what it, these are a couple examples. Jesus says that the things you give up, the things that you have given up and suffered for on account of Jesus, you are going to get a reward for that. And when you get it, you're going to be like, oh, this is exponentially bigger than I deserve. You are going to get rewards for the good use you've made of your specific abilities and the places of power that God has put you in. When you've stewarded that power well, you are going to get a reward from Jesus when he returns. You're going to get a reward for loving your enemies, the people that don't deserve to be forgiven and loved, when you love them, you're going to get a reward for that. You're going to get a reward for selfless generosity, for caring for the poor. We will get reward. We will get rewarded for serving Christians just because they're Christians, loving and serving Christians because Jesus has joined himself to them. We are going to get rewards for that as well. And there's probably so many other places we're going to get rewards and we're going to be like, why am I getting so much reward? I don't deserve this. Um, what does it look like in your specific life to believe this? What does it look like? Where is somewhere where you've forgotten that there's going to be a reward? You never thought about it before. Or alternately, this is kind of fun to think about, what, what have you given up? Is there something that you've given up? For example, have you like, um, maybe because of your integrity, you lost your job. Maybe because of your integrity, you didn't get a promotion. You're going to get a reward for that. I think we should be looking forward to the reward. This sounds, this sounds like a prosperity gospel, right? But prosperity gospel is about th- this life. This is about the one that comes when Jesus returns. We should be excited about the reward that we are going to get from Jesus. Um, this should be a great motivation for us serving him. He's going to give out rewards. Now, the Bible is kind of vague about what these rewards look like. It's, I think one reason is because we're not gonna, we can't really understand it. We can't understand, an, uh, we can't, can't understand eternity. We can't understand eternity in a world that's not broken. So it's kind of vague about these words, but some kind of reigning, some kind of ruling, maybe like, for example, like my, my, I talked about my lawn last week. Maybe like my lawn actually doing what I want it to do and sprouting where I want it to sprout and vegetables coming up and grass not having weeds. That, that would feel pretty good if I could put, this as a small example. Uh, but there's a day when you're going to stand before Jesus and he will say to you something like, and I'm going to put my name here. These are not specific examples for me, but uh, I'm just going to put my name there because it'll make me feel good. Um, he's going to say something like this to you when he returns. He's going to say, you, Will Cody, the money that you gave to the church, that was used to help this family that really needed help. You were my agent. You were my hands with this family. The money you gave to the church, this enabled Bible studies to happen. This enabled the worship service to happen. This enabled people to come to know me that would have never known me if you had not given this money to the church. Well done, good servant. Take this, take this reward. And I'm going to be like, that's too much. Um, Will Cody, you didn't hit your sister back when she was acting like your enemy, but you shared your chicken nuggets with her in return. Here is your reward. You will, Cody. You were promoted to a manager, and instead of using your new power to um, instead of using your your power for your own gain, you used it to um, actively prevent corruption, to stand up for little people, people that don't have power. You went out of your way to help those who needed help with this power that you were given. Here's your reward, Will Cody, or Will Cody, you. When you realized that your marriage was in trouble, you humbled yourself to go to counseling in order to love your wife and your children. Here is your reward, Will Cody. Or one more Will Cody, you welcomed that new person that came to church. You welcomed that new person that came to your school. You welcomed that new person at your work who didn't have any friends. And you went out of your way as the person who knows what's going on, you went out of your way, and it was a total pain, but you went out of your way to help this person get oriented and feel welcomed at the church, at, the, at your school, at, uh, at work. Here's your reward. Jesus is coming back as king, and why do we look forward to his returning? Because he is giving us rewards when he comes. And that leads us to our third point. Because Jesus is coming back as king. We should be faithful to our returning king. Look with me. We won't, we're not going to read it all. We should read a couple of verses. But look with me in verse 20. A third servant comes up and says, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. So in response, the king takes away that guy's mina, gives it to the guy with 10 minas. So this third servant he, instead of doing business for the king, he takes his mina and he takes his life and he hides it away. It's safe. He hides it away. He does no work for the returning king. He's not faithful with what he has been given, this life he's been given. So he gets no reward. He's like the, if you've, heard, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul has this hypothetical person, this hypothetical man who, when Jesus, re- it's very similar to our text. When Jesus returns, though it says that though he himself is saved, Everything he's worked for everything in his whole life everything. He's like naked guy running out of a burning down house Everything that he's worked for has been burned away because it wasn't worth anything It wasn't the king's business So it was worthless At the end of his life. He's got nothing Nothing to show for it. Nothing. Nothing that was done for the king and this guy's saved but he's got nothing (laughs) And that's what paul is warning us against That's what jesus is warning us against now How did the servant get to this place? Well he says, his own words say, that he was afraid and accuses the king of being severe and basically that the king was stealing things that wasn't his. But from everything that we've heard about this king, he's great, right? This king, he shares his power with those under him. He enables, he's not, he enables people. He rewards his servants exponentially compared to what they have accomplished. And if we suspend like our inherent skepticism with authority figures for a moment, The big king trusted this nobleman. The big king gave him this title and this authority. So he must be good. He's a good king. But what keeps us from being faithful with these new lives that God has graced us with, that God has given us? One reason that our text uh, offers us is that we start to think of God like we used to, like those citizens, right? The citizens that ran off and didn't want him to be king those citizens in this third servant have a very similar mindset. Why are we not hospitable to new people? Why are we tempted not to be generous with our money? Why are we tempted to hit our sisters back or retali- whatever retaliation looks like for you? It's because we don't believe that God is good. We don't believe that God is taking care of us. We have to take care of ourselves because he's not going to do it. Why would I make myself uncomfortable? Why would I put my life on the line? Why would I risk anything in my life if I don't, if I, if in the same time, I believe God doesn't have my back, that God's not taking care of me, that God's not coming back, that Jesus isn't coming back. And maybe he's even malevolent. Maybe he's even not a good God. I wouldn't. I would never do that. Why would you? You wouldn't. One reason that the first two servants were so successful, it seems like in contrast to this, is that they knew that the king had their back as they did business, they were free to fail. They were free to, as long as they were faithful to him, as long as they were doing it for him, whatever. I've got a friend that I, I think of as a very successful person, and he started his own um, ad agency several years ago. He was very successful, and I was like, man, what's, it? I, one time I was like, wow, you're really successful. What's it like to be so successful? And he's like, Will, I failed at everything I've ever done. And he listed like his career, his career history to me. I was like, wow, you are a failure. <laughs> but he's free to fail. In this specific example, he just goes for it. He uses his, his, even his failures. Now, you think this king, if he came back and if he saw that the servants were being faithful to their king, but things just weren't working out, maybe they were stuttering and failing, but they were faithful. They were wanting to be faithful to this king. You think he would have rewarded them? I'm sure he would have. It was their faithfulness that was the basis for this reward. He wanted to see their faithfulness. That's what it comes down to here. This is like the crux of this parable. Is your life, does your, or does your life tend toward, a desperate, fearful clinging for self-preservation? Or is, it, or is your life this adventure, trusting this king and doing his business? Your, your life is all about doing his business for him with the end of eternal rewards. That's the crux of this parable. Where where do you tend toward? That's what Jesus wants to open up for you. So like the parable last week, the Pharisee and the tax collector, this parable is kind of open-ended here at the end as well for us to answer the question. Will the servant realize that he was wrong and take up the charge again to be faithful to his king? Will the citizens that are hostile to this king in this king's business, that the king has just ordered to come be slaughtered in front of um, them, is there still time to ask for mercy? He leaves that up to his listeners to decide, but I think there is. I think there is, and for any of us who are listening, who who have not entrusted ourselves to this faithful king and to serve him, because the king who is actually telling this parable right here, he in a week, he's he's in a week he's going to enter Jerusalem. A city filled with people that hate him and when they're killing him on the cross murdering him This is in luke's gospel a couple chapters later This is the this is the gospel where he cries out father forgive them for they know not what they do as they are murdering him Jesus spends time dying to pray to god to forgive these people that are presently killing him This is the kind of king you can be faithful toward because at one time That was you you were his enemy I was his enemy. And he came and sought us out. He was faithful to us when we were not only unfaithful, we were his enemies. We can be faithful to him because he is faithful to us when we were enemies and even today. And he proves his faithfulness to us again here in this meal. He died for his enemies. He died for you and me. And we remember the great extent to which he loved us As we eat and drink this sacrifice. And as we eat and drink by his Holy Spirit, he is present with us and he helps us to trust him. Now, this is not City Church's table. This is not the PCA's table. This is Jesus's table. This is the Lord's table, right? And if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, please come and taste the freedom and forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ. Come taste his faithfulness. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, we would ask that you would pass on this bread and cup, and instead that you take a moment and think about Jesus and consider Him and what you're passing up here, and consider the freedom, the forgiveness that could be yours, that would be yours, absolutely, if you were to entrust yourself to Him. Jesus Christ, on the night in which He was betrayed, He took the bread, and we, when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to His disciples. And said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and having having, having given thanks, having given thanks, he gave it to the disciples, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Drink this, all of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for enlisting us in this business of the King. As we eat and we drink the lengths to which Jesus went to win us for you, by your Spirit, work in our hearts that our fears would melt away so that we would be faithful servants to our faithful King. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.